We'll continue in our series in Mark this morning. So it's on the screen. You can also turn in your Bibles if you have them uh, to Mark chapter 3, starting verse 7. Jesus withdrew his, with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up to the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might, be a, they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boernagus, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, I'm glad that you're here this morning with us. I suppose there's other things you could be doing. <laughs> you, you, you might not be going out much, but you could be sleeping in. You could be burning through that new Netflix series that your kids are just destroying over the past week. You could be doing any number of things, but especially in a time like this, we need to hear God's word. So let's go in prayer. Father, we pray that you would be with us this morning. We pray that we would hear from you, that you would open our ears to hear, that you would open our hearts to receive your word. There's no other place that we need wisdom more than from you. So we ask that you would give it in your son's name. Amen. A lot has changed, not just in the past week or two, though this crisis betrays many symptoms of what's changed, but a lot has changed in Western and especially American culture over the last couple of decades. In a little uh, booklet that Tim Keller recently put out, he identifies three challenges we now face in reaching the West with the gospel. He identifies the political polarization that we experience, the digital age in which we live that tends to form us more than any other experience because we're always connected, we're always online, we're always on our devices. And perhaps above all the other things, that we have entered a kind of post-Christian culture. This is, how, uh, he, this is what he comments on. He says, late modern culture is the first culture, it means first culture ever in history, the first culture based on the rejection of a sacred order. In the name of individual freedom, today's society declares that there are no transcendent realities to which we must conform. 
And in that space, as, a, as we are living into a post-Christian moment, you can see the challenges that we face in a crisis like the coronavirus. But it's also in the daily routine of what does it mean to follow Christ? So this is an important question if you are a Christian, of course. What does it mean to follow Christ in a post-Christian world? But even if you're here and you're thinking about the faith, if you're asking questions about whether you would want to believe and trust in Christ, it's an important question for you too because Jesus is so clear that if you want to follow him, you have to count the cost. So we'll see three things this morning about what it means to follow Christ. We'll see that it involves distinction, it involves confrontation, and it involves rejection. There's hope in the middle of that. That may not sound like the brightest message for this morning, but there's distinction, confrontation, and rejection. And I tell you, there will be hope at the end of that. So start, let's start with, dis, with uh, distinction. And we'll begin in the middle of the passage, actually, when Jesus calls the 12 disciples. Notice this is at verse, uh, verses 13 through 19. And he starts by going up on a mountain. So just like God had called his people, and he took them to Mount Sinai, and he identified them as his chosen people, Out of all the nations, the people that he had chosen, he chose the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus goes up on a mountain and sets apart 12 of his followers. Jesus is, in other words, symbolically reconstituting Israel. He is is making Israel new. He is, you might say, also making Israel what it was always meant to be. Those that follow the king. Those that follow the Messiah. So they're followers, but he also designates them as apostles, which is an which is a interesting term. It means those who are sent out. In a few chapters, in chapter six, you'll see that Jesus actually does send them out. And of course, much later, when Jesus is crucified, resurrected, and ascends, the apostles are the ones who go out. They are the witnesses to what Jesus has done. And the New Testament is largely their writings. So they are those who are sent out. And there's a a host of fascinating details about who they are. Uh, We find out that Simon is renamed Peter, the rock. We find out that James and John are called sons of thunder. I have no idea what that means. (laughs) Nobody's really quite certain what it means. Uh, Apparently, they must have been impressive in some way. They will show up later asking if they can be the greatest in the kingdom. With a name like that, I guess you can't wonder why. Help but wonder why. Then at the end, notice this, Judas Iscariot shows up. And spoiler alert, he betrays Jesus. So we get this picture of, uh, of all these different, these different 12 disciples that Jesus is calling as his apostles. And what's interesting about the apostles is they have a certain important distinctive calling. That they are to be, bear witness to Jesus. We hear this throughout the New Testament at the end of Luke, in Luke 24, 48. Jesus says they're to be his witnesses. He says it again in Acts 1, 8. Uh, and Peter himself reflects on this in 2 Peter 1, 16. And Paul will say in Ephesians 2, 20 that they are the foundation of the church. And yet, what is so fascinating about the apostles is that while they have a distinct task, the distinction is one of degree, not of kind. 
Notice what Mark says. They're called, this is in, uh, in verse 14, to be with Jesus. Now, they're with Jesus, of course, in a way that is more intense than any of us have, have ever been with Jesus. He's, they, they're with him face to face. They're with him 24 hours a day, and yet that's still the call for every Christian. To be with God. In fact, this is the distinction of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to be a follower of Jesus. It was for them and it is for us now is that we want to be with Jesus. See, the Christian message, the gospel, is not merely that there is a God. It isn't merely that some guy named Jesus showed up. It is that God is met in Jesus. That that is the way that we find God. And there is nothing better than to be with Him. All the rewards that, that, that are offered in the gospel are all relational. They're all related to knowing God through Jesus. In fact, even when there are other places in the New Testament where it talks about rewards, it talks about streets of gold, that is imagery that's all connected to the idea of the temple. The place where you met God. So the, the distinctiveness of the Christian message is always that we meet God through Jesus and in Jesus, and we want to be with him. That is a mark of a disciple, is that above everything else, we want to be with Jesus. In verse 14, we're also told that they're to preach, and they preach with authority going into verse 15, where that authority drives out demons. It is based on God's word. Now, again, here the apostles are unique in the sense that they have been specifically tasked, and what they say will become Scripture. But we are still to preach the good news of Jesus. We're preaching from the word. We're preaching from the apostles' writings. But we're still called to preach. Again, there's a distinction of degree, but not of kind. Right? We're still called to preach the good news of Jesus. We're called to be in his word. And it's fascinating, isn't it, how easily Christians give up on this. There's, there's one famous televangelist, who, which is weird. I'm a televangelist, I guess, now. Something I never really wanted to be. But there, here we are. And, uh, but there's one famous televangelist who preaches to enormous crowds. And at the beginning of his sermon, he has everybody pick up a Bible. And they have a kind of creed where they talk about how it's God's word and they're going to live by it. But then he lays it down. And his message isn't based on it. In the rare occasion that he actually mentions a Bible verse, it's sort of cherry-picked out to prove his, a point that he's already making. And my point isn't to pick on him. My point is that we often do this, don't we? My point is that we are often quick to sort of think that we have a grasp of the world. And we have a grasp of the situation that we're in. And then we go to the Bible to find whether it confirms, and we're not that interested if it doesn't, if it confirms the way we already see the world. But Calvin, the famous theologian, tells us that Scripture is supposed to be like our spectacles, like, like the glasses, the lens through which we see the world. And so we're called to go to God's Word first to help us understand who we are, to help us understand what's going on in our lives. And there is a third distinction 
that's helpful to remember. This is the distinctiveness of the lives that we live. Now that's not, I will say, that's not mentioned here, but it's all throughout, of course, the Gospels. It's all throughout Jesus' teaching. He's always telling his disciples, and we will see more of this as we get later into Mark, but he's always telling his disciples how they're supposed to live distinctive lives. But those lives are shaped by the sacrificial love of Jesus. The distinction is not whether you do good to those who do good to you. It's not whether you love those who love you, but whether you live sacrificially for others. And that involves, of course, a personal holiness. That involves, that involves us taking seriously the choices about our own lives, but it also involves a relational holiness because Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus seeks out those who are in need. In fact, he's so known for it, the crowds are looking for him, pressing in on him. We're supposed to be, in other words, if I could summarize that distinction, we're supposed to be in God. There's being comes first. Then hearing God through His Word. And then doing what He calls us to do. And in an election year, the challenge to be distinctive is never more obvious Because on the one hand, we have Christians who tend to talk a lot about personal holiness, and so they imply that you should be on one end of the political spectrum. And others who talk a lot about relational holiness and imply that you should be on the other end of the spectrum. But here's the thing. When we draw our distinctiveness along the dominant political lines, the dominant party lines of our own day, we are not being distinct at all. We are simply taking sides rather than living into a different way that values first the presence of God and His Word and then our actions. So we're called to be distinct. And with that comes confrontation. If we're distinct, we will experience confrontation. Notice this. Jesus, back at the beginning of our passage, back at verses 7-10, through 10, Jesus is being The crowds are coming to him. They're crushing him. He has to escape on a boat so he doesn't get pushed into the water and presumably drown. People want to be with him, but they primarily want him as a miracle worker. And you can see they're coming from all over the place. If you know a little bit about these places that are being mentioned, it's Galilee and Judea. These are the two primarily Jewish areas. Galilee is up to the north. That's where Jesus is from, the the city, the town of Nazareth is up there. And then down south is Judea where Jerusalem was, and that was the religious political center of Israel. But then Idumea is a place to the south of that. And then there's to the east of the Jordan. And there's Tyre and Sidon to the north. And those are not predominantly Jewish areas. The implication is the people who are coming are either not purely Jewish or perhaps not even Jewish at all. And they're coming to see this miracle worker. They're coming for the healing. And then, of course, Jesus, in in accomplishing his mission, is driving out the demonic forces. And they're the ones who want to speak up. You see, on, on the one hand, the crowds, they want what Jesus can give them for their immediate needs. So they don't really understand the significance of what Jesus is accomplishing. 
But on the other hand, the demons know who he is, but they want to mess up his plan. They're creating all this noise, and Jesus has to keep silencing them, right? Because they would distort what he is doing. So Jesus, so confrontation is just part of what Jesus' mission. I mean, it, it, his distinctiveness leads to confrontation all over the place. And that is how it is when you follow Jesus, because you will find that you are confronting the three enemies that are always there. Historically, the church has talked about the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, you see the demonic forces, of course, quite clearly in this passage. And we've been seeing this, if, you, if you're following our series in Mark, you see this all along. It begins in chapter 1, verse 13, when Jesus confronts Satan. And then there are all these mentions, and they, so far they've been relatively short scenarios, these mentions of the demons being driven out. Now, we'll see in chapter 5 a much longer story about that. But this confrontation with the demonic forces can't be missed. It's all over. Mark. It's all over all of the Gospels, quite frankly. And now, there's, when we talk about the demonic forces, I realize there is a tendency to take these, the, the idea of the demonic forces in weird directions. Sometimes people blame their problems on demonic forces. Sometimes people blame their illnesses on demonic forces. And here's the thing. Maybe there is a spiritual aspect to those. But what the Bible d- teaches us is that we're still to deal with people and the choices that they make. We're still, of course, of course, supposed to care for their bodies. That treating this as if there might be some spiritual problem is not to the exclusion of dealing with those things that we're supposed to deal with. But there is a spiritual reality at work, and we've mentioned this a few weeks ago, that Satan's two primary tactics, and one of the ways in which we can be clear about this, is when lies about God's character are being spread, And when accusations against his people are being spread. These are Satan's go-to tactics. Lying about God and accusing his people. And when we're in the middle of a pandemic, these questions arise, don't they? I'm not saying Satan's to blame for them. I'm not saying that this is all demonic. What I am saying is it's an opportunity for the spiritual forces that are arrayed against God to blame him and to accuse his people. So there is the devil and the demonic forces, and then there's the world. And when the Bible talks about the world, it doesn't mean, it's not describing as an enemy of us the physical, material world, because God is a good creator. In fact, Jesus, he's resurrected from the dead. The hope that we have as Christians is that we will be raised body and soul. It's not the material world, but rather the values of this world. It is when we see the horizon of our imagination is only what is under the sun, as the book of Ecclesiastes puts it. When we just imagine that the only thing is what I get here and now. My kids and I have been playing the game of life a bunch this week. Of course, the, the goal of the game of life is to have the most money. And I feel strangely pedantic reminding them over and over again, but this isn't the meaning of real life. (laughs) Because that's a way of imagining that all that there is is what you get and what you gain. When what Jesus tells us is not what you've gained, but what you've given. So the idea of worldliness 
is that that's all we imagine. This is what's got the crowds. This is what's captured the imagination of the crowds. It is not wrong that they want to be healed. Of course they want to be healed. Of course they want to be healed. But they fail to see how big their problems really are. If you were with us a couple of weeks ago, our friend Danny preached on the beginning of chapter 2. When there's a paralyzed man who's healed, Jesus heals him. It is a beautiful, amazing thing that Jesus heals him. But his needs are deeper than that. He needs to be forgiven. Again, in a pandemic, this helps put it in put the Christian's concern in perspective. We want to love others. We want to care for them and their well-being. And we should. But we also know that there is something deeper and more profound that's sick with the world. And it is tough to balance those. That is not the message people want to hear. So there is... the devil, there's the world, but there's also the flesh or the sinful nature. Again, not your physical body, but the indwelling evil that's within us, that we're born into. And you see this so clearly with Judas. Because right here in the midst of Jesus' followers is someone who will be consumed by sin. Judas not only buys into the lies of the world, but he gives up the internal fight. And this is so important to understand because the dominant narrative that we have in the modern world is that you should follow your heart. Follow your feelings. You be you. I'm not sure anybody actually says that anymore, but you be you is still the message we get over and over and over again. In other words, any sense that we have that we are struggling inside is considered bad. Now look, there's a hint of truth in it. There is. On the one hand, there is such a thing as external oppression. And the Bible speaks clearly about that and the evil of it. There's also a thing of internal repression. That is to say, when we are being dishonest about what is going on inside of our own hearts. And the Bible also speaks clearly to that. If there's one place we ought to be in the middle of a crisis, it's in the Psalms. And if you read through the Psalms, You'll find over and over again a kind of brutal honesty about the internal struggles of the psalmist. So there is such a thing as oppression and repression, and those things are real, and yet the Bible is still more honest than we are, more clear-eyed than we are, that we at least have divided desires. Sometimes we want one thing, sometimes we want another. And if you ever deal with somebody who falls into deep sin, If you ever get involved in their lives, you will often hear that. You see, I I love my spouse. I also wanted this other thing. They have a divided heart. See, good and evil is just not a category for out there. It's for in here. And not only are we divided, but some of those desires are destructive. And some of those will eat us out from the inside. You see, one of, the reasons, one of the things that we miss so often in our modern narrative is that sometimes we're our own worst enemy. And there's many Christians who think it's weird that they have the deep internal struggles when they're in the faith 
But in fact, that's not a sign of failure. That's a sign of life. That's a sign that you are being changed, that you are being transformed. So we're distinct, which leads to confrontation. And that does lead to rejection. As we get to the end of the passage, we see that Jesus goes to his home in verse 20. A good reminder that Jesus is fully human. He has a family, which apparently is not completely functional, at least a little dysfunctional. They're not happy about Jesus showing up. And you can imagine how this goes, right? Uh, we don't know much about Jesus growing up. We don't, there's, very, there's very little we know. There's one story we know, besides, you know after he was a toddler. <laughs> uh, when they went to the temple when he was 12. That is, that's the one story we know about Jesus. But you can imagine that with the kind of character that Jesus has, he probably wasn't bossing people around, he wasn't in charge, he wasn't pushing himself to the forefront. But now, all of a sudden, he's become this massive, massive figure. In a very short period of time, he has all these followers, he's being called this great rabbi, he's healing people, and he shows up to town, he shows up to his own hometown with this giant crowd following him. And you can see what his family's thinking. He's gotten a little too big for his britches. Who does he think he is? In fact, they go on to say, he's out of his mind. They think he's lost his mind. Now, we're going to see them again next week. They show back up. And even Mary, apparently, is part of this. That, he, uh, that despite all that she had seen and heard, she's still not sure she understands what's going on with him. They think he's out of his mind. Jesus is rejected and by the closest people in his life. And he warns us elsewhere that the world has hated them, and so he will hate us. This is in John 17, verse 14. In the, and later in John's epistle, his first epistle, 1 John 3, 13, he says, don't be surprised when the world hates you. In other words, it's almost as if rejection is also inevitable. Now, there are any number of reasons why Christians get rejected by others that are probably legitimate rejections. Christians are often hypocrites. I mean, isn't this true? I mean, I don't know how many conversations I've had where the clear subtext, the implication was, yeah, I know some Christians, but I also know the way that they act. And look, the point isn't that Christians are, shouldn't be sinners, because good luck living up to that. The question is whether we're repentant sinners or not. And there are so many times when you're that I've been in evangelistic conversations and you realize that actually one of the biggest hurdles is they actually know Christians. And those Christians are hypocrites. It's also the case that when Christians bear witness to Christ, we have relied often, especially in the evangelical world, on programs that taught you a, a script to run through. And it's not wrong, of course, to help people think through how they might approach a conversation 
But what that has often led to are conversations where we are not listening at all. Where we're relying on a technique and trying to hit the bullet points rather than actually listening to the conversations. And I've had a number of painful conversations with friends of mine who are rabbis that I worked with at Harvard who can tell you stories about Christians they knew who were just running them through a program, not listening to them, not, not actually engaging the questions and concerns they had. That said, while Christians are sometimes rejected because they're just being jerks, there is something underlying it all. That the distinctiveness of the Christian life tends to draw out contrast that offends. You see, we are called to rest in Christ. In other words, that first distinctiveness of being in God's presence does mean that we see a sacred order and that reorders the way in which we see the world. And while many people, of course, in principle, don't have a problem with you seeing the world differently than they do, when we get to a crisis moment and our priorities are a little different, when on the one hand, we are willing to say some things are really significant and we need to take action or we need to, we need to mourn what is going on and others don't want to deal with it. It draws out a contrast that's painful. When, on the other hand, people are panicking and we're saying, look, God, this is not out of God's control. And while we'll take serious action, we are not going to panic. We are not going to think that we can't trust the Lord. It draws out a contrast. Think about the other distinctiveness as well. The preaching of the good news. Now look, some of those evangelistic techniques that get rejected are just all bad news. You know, people are being offended because they're just told, you're terrible. And look, you can find that anywhere. Are you a parent? Go look on some parenting blogs. You can find out that you're a terrible parent. You can find out right now all the terrible things you're, dealing, you're doing that are not helping the coronavirus pandemic. You can find all of the different ways in which you ought to eat better, you ought to exercise better. There are a million ways in which we're told that you don't live up. The scandal of the gospel is the good news, not the bad. The scandal of the gospel is not that you are somehow not perfect. The scandal of the gospel is the grace of God. You see, the offense of the gospel is that I might actually need God's grace. The late Christopher Hitchens, a famous atheist, said, I find something repulsive about the idea of vicarious redemption. The whole apparatus of absolution and forgiveness strikes me as positively immoral. This is why, as we saw last week, Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous, I came to call sinners. You see, it is our own sense of being righteous that causes the scandal. Because we don't think we need God's grace. And thirdly, the third distinctive was that we live differently. But notice this, the living out of the gospel 
is oh, it is on the one hand the personal holiness that we talked about, and it is the relational holiness that we talked about, but it is mostly defined by the sacrificial love of Jesus. If there is one touchstone for how we live, it is by the sacrificial love of Christ. And again, that is an offense. People don't want to be loved that way. Not at least until they realize the depth of their need. Which I think is the reason for hope. And we'll end, we will end here. <laughs> that the reason for hope is that rejection is not final. First of all, the rejection of a Christian is not with is not just for or I should say doesn't finish the story. We are of course going to be received by God. But also, it is the moment of rejection that often forces the realization of someone's need. Think about Peter himself, the rock. Peter is the one who will reject Jesus. And that will become the defining moment of his life because it is in the moment that he rejects Jesus that his heart breaks in two. It is precisely at that moment that he sees the depth of his need, that his pride has crumbled. We see, that, we see the same thing with Paul, right? He, Paul rejects, of course, the gospel. He goes around and kills Christians. And when he has a vision, he realizes the profound depths of his need. So rejection often becomes the opportunity for new people to be received. And this is the strange paradox that the church often grows most when it's persecuted. If we're concerned about being in a post-Christian moment, if we're concerned about what might come our way, might it be that we actually have more opportunity to witness powerfully? When others reject us? And lastly, the rejection that we experience is a taste, a little taste of what Jesus endured on our behalf. You see, it is when a Christian is rejected for the gospel that they get just a taste of what Jesus drank to the dregs of rejection. You see, it is there that we find out the power of God's grace. It is here that we get new views, new angles on how much Jesus has loved us. Because Jesus wasn't scared of rejection. He knew that every single person would reject Him. And yet, He loved us to the end. And he was determined that it would not be the end of the story. So let's have confidence that the Spirit is at work. And even in a moment like ours now where we are so desperate, when we feel oftentimes in the church that the culture has left us behind, when we're in an immediate crisis, let's find hope that Jesus has not given up on us. And so let's follow him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you loved us to the end. That you sent your son. That he endured everything. That he endured the cross. 
endured hell itself. Teach us to be your disciples, to endure rejection so that we might enjoy what it means to be with you. We ask all this for Christ's sake. Amen.